Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 290, an interview with the author of Haunted Empire, Gothic, and the Russian Imperial Uncanny. Okay, today we have a special guest, uh, Valeria Sobel, who's a professor of Slavic languages and literatures from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. She's the author of Haunted Empire. Gothic and the Russian Imperial Uncanny. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Sobel. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. It's an honor. Thank you. Uh, in the podcast, we've covered a number of literary giants in Russian and Soviet history, like Chekhov, Tolstoy, Akhmatova, Solzhenitsyn, Pasternak, and Gorky, as well as the development of Russian literature. But your book takes this to a whole other level that I believe many of my listeners would be fascinated by. What intrigued me right away was two terms that are in the title of your book, Gothic and Uncanny. So what do you mean by them? Yeah, thank you. Um, so it's in different direction also because I don't really deal with many giants. I, I look at a lot of minor figures, actually, in Russian and Ukrainian literary, or minor at least by, you know, by the standards of sort of canon. Um, yeah, so we can talk about it later maybe, but in terms of Gothic and uncanny. So Gothic is, uh, we're used to it more as an architectural term, right? Um, but it was also literary genre. So as, as an architectural term, right, we'll know, basically what it means, right? Cathedrals, right, of a medieval period um, or, or neo-Gothic, pseudo-Gothic architecture of many college campuses, not Urbana-Champaign, but <laughs> not University of Illinois, but many others. Um, but the term itself actually originates from the word Goth, which the Germ Germanic tribe, right, that sacked Rome um, in um, fourth century, um, an era, and the associations were particularly with this barbarism. Right, kind of the uh, that barbaric northern tribe attacks the cradle of southern, right, a sophisticated civilization and destroys it. So later, when this architecture uh, was created in Middle Ages, and then the whole medieval culture was sort of dismissed by during the Renaissance, they termed it Gothic because it was whimsical, ornate, not harmonious, right, by the standards of you know classical antiquities that was resurrected during Renaissance. So it actually had negative connotations. And had this like original association with um, that, as I said, barbarity, backwardness, um, irrational, irrationality. And then when um, in the 18th century, um, most, mostly in uh, the British um, literary tradition, there was a series of novels that often set in Middle Ages and also invoke the kind of irrational fears, you know, ghosts, <laughs> haunting castles that uh, term was resurrected and applied to that particular literature, both because of its primarily medieval setting or either or medieval castles, although it wasn't always medieval later on, but and also because of this whole complex of associations with all these values that were kind of not in line this time with Enlightenment values, right? So Gothic was, uh, Gothic novels uh, were about irrationality. Again, it was about some dark uh, prejudices, some dark secrets, you know, the, uh, the ghost of the past haunting the present, everything that challenged the kind of confident rationality 
of an Enlightenment era with its belief in reason and so on. And historians later, uh, historians of literature have claimed, and I think justly so, that um, even though the first Gothic novels appeared before the French Revolution, but the, the true explosion of the genre happens in the aftermath of the French Revolution in the 1790s, mostly, and early uh, 1800s, that the kind of crisis of enlightenment and the sort of sense of the world falling apart, basically, um, that um, accompanied right the events of the French Revolution, the terror, the Napoleonic Wars, that uh, that the literary genre was at some level the response, uh, artistic response to that sense of disorientation. So um, I can talk about the Russian context now or later, however we want, but that's that's the term. So and and this genre proved extremely popular. Probably everybody's familiar with Dracula, right? The novel hundreds years later, but it was still a very productive and active, vibrant tradition uh, throughout the 19th century. Um, Edgar Allan Poe, right, and so on. Um, and in Russia, it came uh, to Russia. It came later, and uh, it was kind of seen as a borrowed genre, as a kind of that fashion. You know, Russia was lagging behind. It was borrowing everything from the West. The Gothic literature was popular, so Russian writers were desperately trying to keep up and started writing their own Gothic stories. And this is the reason why um, Russian Gothic was not, uh, for a long time, was not did not receive serious scholarly attention. So scholars kind of dismissed it. It's just another Western influence, not worth talking about. But I, I'm trying to <laughs> show its its importance. Um, and then Kenny is um, kind of related um, concept because Gothic literature is a lot about fear and the sense of being in a kind of unsettled uh, sense of, you know, you're in the castle, you think you're okay, but there are some steps <laughs> in in the hallway and then, oh, there's a ghost there, or there was some crime or some transgression in the, in the history of that family, right, that comes back and haunts haunts you. And I look at it more from a, sen from a historical kind of uh, perspective as uh, those traumas or, of history, of colonization, of imperial expansion that kind of come back and haunt uh, Russia, Russian Empire. Um, in the 19th century. Uh, but the term uncanny I took from Freud, <laughs> unabashedly, who had this um, famous essay in 1919, uh, Das Unheimlich, or then Kenny. And actually, if you're a linguistics nerd, anybody who's a linguistics nerd should look at this, or etymology nerd, look at this essay, even if you not, don't care about psychoanalysis, because the first part of the essay is a fascinating um, etymological linguistics kind of ex excursus where Freud shows that, uh, so unheimlich literally means unhomely in German, which I don't know so well, but I can figure this out. Um, and um, it's, um, so it should be the opposite of homey, familiar, right? Comfortable, intimate, it's something scary, something foreign. But Freud, Freud says, it. if you go deeper into the etymology, you see that heimlich, homey, you know, one's own, domestic, also has an additional meaning of concealed from the outsider, something that's only accessible to the insider members of the home or the family. And in association with that, it develops the connotations of being mysterious, esoteric, unsettling, scary. So as a result, the uncanny, the unheimlich, unheimlich and heimlich, the homey and unhomey, the familiar and strange, the comfortable, safe and threatening kind of collapse into one or sort of merge into one category. And this is, I thought it was fascinating because um, to me, that's what I started seeing in literary text about 
the Russian Empire is a metaphorical home, right? It's kind of the place where those literary characters, you know, they move around, they're Russians, or maybe not, but they're <laughs> labeled as Russians uh, in the imperial sense. They they visit various regions, but especially I look at the borderlands, right? There is something unsettling about that place. Um, and why so? So I'm trying to kind of, and of course, in literature, the Gothic mode with its emphasis on fear, on anxiety, right, on mystery, is a perfect literary vehicle for channeling this the sense of disorientation, the uncanniness of, of the imperial experience. And that's what I try to kind of explore in my book to bring those two modes together, to two um, themes together, the, the literary tradition of the Gothic uh, as a, again, the artistic tool for expressing through seemingly innocent entertaining popular genre expressing some deeper historical and national traumas right yeah that's fascinating about uh that merger with you and, and knowing so much about russian history and how unsettled it was for pretty much its entirety of the thousands of years that it's been around but what sparked your interest in this topic yeah interesting question so um it's a long story <laughs> i hope i won't digress too much because actually uh, originally this is was kind of a new development in my research agenda my first book uh which was based on my columbia university dissertation which also had a catchy title febris erotica <laughs> love sickness in the russian literary imagination dealt with a complete also with 19th century but with and also in a historical context but with a completely different set of concerns. It was more about the interaction of medicine and literature and this phenomenon kind of a trope of love sickness of heroes succumbing to uh, physical illnesses as a result of some kind of romantic, unfortunate romantic experience, unrequited love, and how this reflected contemporary theories about uh, the human soul, the emotions, the connection between the physical and the spiritual or emotional. So that was kind of a different uh, story altogether. And I was ne never comfortable, I didn't used to be comfortable of writing on kind of politicized topics because I felt like um, I'd rather deal with literature, culture, maybe science, but nothing that uh, ideological. But I was also fascinated um, by the portrayal of ethnic others in, in Russian literature and literature in general, of eth ethnographic elements in literature. I taught a course on travel literature, which of course involves a lot of encounter with different cultures or different regions and kind of that shock and the uh, of seeing, you know, somebody who doesn't look like you, who doesn't sound like you, and what to do with that. But it might come from a personal experience, maybe. I think that that interest as a Soviet Jew <laughs> growing up in Soviet Ukraine, and uh, even though um, I spoke both Russian and Ukrainian with my friends and uh, kind of we all shared the same secular Soviet culture, I always had this acute sense of otherness as, as most other Soviet Jews. So I think that's part of the kind of the personal dimension of that interest. And then, um, yeah, it's actually, when I was teaching the travel course, I thought some of the works I've been reading, I've taught and read so many times before, but you kind of see differently when it's put in a different context. And I don't know if you had a podcast about Lermontov and his novel, A Hero of Our Time, um, which is set in the Caucasus. And portrays this Russian sort of Byronic hero, right, trying to escape um, the banality, right, of uh, Central Russia in this colorful, dangerous world. Um, 
But there is one interesting novella that composed that. Uh, constitutes the novel in the middle called Taman, which is a little town, which is actually just across from the Crimea to peninsula east. Um, and it's a first stop, chronologically, it's the first stop of that uh, protagonist when he's going to the war in the Caucasus to join the Russian army. And uh, when I taught it, as a, not as a part of like 19th century romanticism or survey, but part of the travel um, course, to start zooming into the Interethnic encounters, and I noticed. Okay, it's a Russian town. He even talks about it as a godforsaken, worst little, like ugly town in Russia. But the characters he encounters there speak Ukrainian, um, and things get really confusing. And it's a Cossack actual settlement, and that explains it. It um, it's a dark atmosphere. It's a little mysterious house. The characters speak Russian to him. Uh, Ukrainian to him, but Russian to each other. One boy is blind, but he's suspiciously adroit and just runs around very well. The old woman is deaf, but maybe not. So, all, and it's not clear how these people are related. And that sense of disorientation at so many anthropological level, right? Language, kinship, uh, even physical dis disabilities, right? Are constantly called into question in this novella. Uh, and our like Russian officer with all his bureaucratic documents, his travel permit, he's completely helpless and disoriented in that ambiguous space. And it's actually frontier town. It was, he's about to cross into the Caucasus. It's still Russia, uh, which is trying to conquer the Caucasus, but that, that part is still is part of the Russian empire. But actually that was the most dangerous place for him in the whole novel. He experienced some very um, problematic adventures um, and was pretty safe during the war in the Caucasus. So I thought it was an interesting paradox and I started investigating further. And, and that is truly uncanny situation there because that, again, sense of the certainty, sense of being at home in Russia, but not really at home anymore. Um, and the gothic trappings of the novella was this dark house and the sort of subhuman strange creatures boarded, boarding on the supernatural even though there's no supernatural element per se. That kind of inspired me to pursue this theme further and look at other possible texts and their context and bring it into more coherent narrative. Fascinating. Uh, one thing I found really interesting is how you differentiated Russian expansion and their empire and say the one the British had where they not only expanded on their own island to you know, Wales and Scotland, but into their quote, uh, exotic overseas colonies. Yeah. You care to comment to that? Yes, of course. So, yeah, it's sort of most historians talk about the Russian Empire as a land empire, right? Which is not completely unique, like Austro Hungarian Empire, right? Is also land empire. But it's quite different, say, from the British uh, case where indeed, like there was India, right? There were some islands uh, uh, overseas. So there's more of a kind of tangible distance between the metropolis, uh, metropolis or in the colony between that white British uh, kind of care of civilization, right? So to speak, uh, that was a justification, right? And they, they colonized who often had different skin color, right? And completely different language. And the Russian empire, it's much, uh, vaguer, right? So, okay, if you go to the Caucasus, it's quite different in terms of, you know, the religion, the ethnicity, and so on. But if you if you go to the Baltic regions, it's also different, but it's 
<laughs> a very different difference, right? And also, um, if you go to Ukraine, it's all the whole story, a uh, whole dif different story. These are Slavs, right, who look like you, who speak a similar language. Um, so then how do you draw these uh, differences? How do you establish your superiority? How do you establish your dominance? And there are books, you know, tons of books, mainly by historians, but some literary scholars as well, written about this. And some actually say that it's not such a unique experience. Some say it's very unique. I'm not a big fan of, like, exceptionality of, of the narrative of Russia's exceptionality. But I think there is some interesting particularities here. So, and what Russia did in those situations, so it's very easy, right, to show how we're different for the British to show how we're different from the Indians, right? Which <laughs> harder for Russians to say how we're different from or superior to, say, uh, Livonians, as they call the Baltic uh, population, right? Um, or the Baltic territories at the time, because well, they're white. Uh, they actually were under Sweden at the time. Um, they were multilingual. <laughs> and um, Or the fin Finland even, right? That Every Russian, I have a whole chapter on Finland, Every almost every Russian uh, traveler, right, comments on how well-educated and literate uh, Finnish peasantry was. They all read their Bible, the Lutherans, right, in, in German, while Russian peasantry was primarily illiterate. And yet, this was the factual kind of documentary observation. Once you go get into lit literature, you see those mythological portrayals of the wild Finn sitting amidst the cliff, uh, completely mythologized, uh, separated from civilization, having no history, in tune with nature, wizard, uh, complete disconnect by this kind of mythological mythologization. And that's not the only reason, but the big reason was that justifies, right? They need to be saved. They need to be civilized. They, they need to be brought into history, right? And who does it better than we, the glorious Russian empire, right? Um, so that was one um, strategy, for example, or with the Baltics, the story says, look at the all, they don't talk about the contemporary or very little about the contemporary situation. Um, they talk about uh, the medieval past and the German um, Teutonic uh, Livonian order there. And they portrayed in very gory Gothic terms as this rule of tyranny, of uh, uh, completely whimsical cruelty and basically barbaric medieval bloodthirsty German barons who sort of uh, ruled over this unfortunate land that again kind of is brought into a benevolent uh, rule by, by the Russian Empire. So it's fascinating actually how history uh, is artistically and ideologically manipulated to both make it an interesting, you know, terrain for exploring uh, new literary techniques or themes, but also for justifying uh, the colonial rule. <laughs> Yeah, fascinating. Uh, you divided the book into two parts, yeah. north and south, with Finland and the Baltics in the northern part, and, you mm -hmm. and the southern one. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So to be perfectly honest, um, I kind of, the first motivation behind this decision was purely structural and kind of convenience, but also thematic, because this is how the British Gothic operates. So it kind of the idea is that uh, in an opposition to the earlier, right, uh, ancient uh, sort of thinking when the North was associated with barbarism, with the Gothic tribe, right, that attacks the developed civilized South, right, the Rome, the Roman Empire, in the Enlightenment period, things are reversed, right? Now, uh, 
British Empire, right? Uh, uh, Britain feels itself being the kind of that rational Protestant northern power uh, that overcame those uh, pitfalls and uh, prejudices uh, of medieval, right, uh, barbarism. And they displaced this medieval sensibility, even if work takes place still in the 18th century in their time period, they displace it geographically into the South. And what is the South? Southern Spain, Italy, Southern France. If you look at Gothic novels produced by English, uh, British writers, by Radcliffe, by Matthew Lewis, by um, uh, Maturin, they're all set in, well, there's sometimes they start in Ireland, which is also interesting, Like, but usually there's some movement towards Southern France or Spain or, or Italy. And why so? Because this way were Catholic Catholic countries that are seen as this epitome of uh, that still preserve this barbarity, that the darkness, that irrationality that that the Protestant North has successfully overcome. So this is the British case, and I'm thinking, okay, but let's look how it works in Russia because it's a very different um, situation, right? The whole Protestant Catholic opposition is not relevant, and also. Um, I was a bit tired, to be honest, of the uh, East-West, this kind of narrative about Russia between East and West, you know, uh, Asia, Europe, where does Russia belong? It's all relevant. These are good questions. But this, uh, I was thinking, hmm, but North and South is also productive axis. So what if we look there, especially since the Gothic genre tends to uh, play with that um, division? So, and... Um, Actually, it was still quite quite vibrant the, that uh, opposition in especially in the first half of the 19th century. There was still the strong association of Russia with the North, with a kind of uh, vigorous, right, younger uh, culture, and uh, especially also because one of the foundation well foundational Russian narratives come from this idea of Varangian or Viking, right, invitation that it's a legend still, right, not fully proven, but uh, the, the narrative goes that in early medieval times, right, there was a mess in the Russian, in the medieval Islamic lands, and they invited Varangians or Vikings to rule over them. So there is this kind of intimate connection to uh, the North at the very foundation of what later became the Russian state. Um, and this is, by the way, what they play with a lot in those Baltic tale tales of the 19th century. Yeah, they were German, they were Swedish, but they really, originally, it's all our territories. We were there. Uh, we had a strong connection to, you know, to this, to this areas and so on. Um, and, um, so this is the North and, and the South, I decided to do something a little different. Usually people think of the Russian South as the Caucasus or Crimea, something more exotic, truly like, uh, all the way, right? Uh, do, you know, in, in by the Black Sea and so on. And I decided to choose Ukraine. Well, partly because I'm from Ukraine, I really wanted to bring that research, that theme into my research. But it's not just uh, random. Ukraine was consistently referred to in the 19th century Southern Russia. That was the idea that this is kind of Russia Southern double or Southern variation. It was the term was used by Gogol, by Ukrainian historians, by Russian historians. Uh, also Little Russia, but often Southern Russia. So, um, and it's also intimately connected like the Scandinavian or Baltic North to the narratives of origin because of course, Kiev and Rus, right? That was the first um, Islamic state and, and later the Russian empire and still unfortunately uh, claims its um, lineage, right? So through um, Kiev and Rus where Orthodox Christianity but was introduced, right, and so on. So these are two interesting uh, regions. But but 
that are both intimately connected to this very primeval, right, foundational uh, stories of what Russia has become, but they also were only recently added to the Russian Empire at the time when when my writers were <laughs> were writing. Um, so Finland, for example, I mean, it was gradual between the early 18th and 19th century, it became part of Russia. Um, the Baltics too, the result of Russia-Swedish war, Sweden wars, and uh, Ukraine and Kiev was gradually also incorporated uh, into the Russian Empire, the result of various divisions of Poland and so on. So they still preserved an aura of exoticism and novelty, but at the same time were seen as part of our own heritage, which added that uncanny confusing element, I think, to how they're portrayed. Yeah, I always found it very interesting how, uh, you know, especially the current administration in Russia is saying that, you know, Ukraine is Russian, it's not their own people. But when we look at it historically, you no, know, they are their own people. They have their of own course. history. Uh, you know, when Moscow was still a little bunch of huts, you know, uh, in a forest, Kiev was one of the most populated cities in Europe, uh, greater than Paris, Whose children of the uh, the leaders in the you know the Vyacheslav Knyaz were married mm-hmm. to the king of France and to right. Scandinavia. Yeah. And I've had a discussion with uh, mm-hmm. the podcasters doing the the history of the Vikings, mm-hmm. and talking about how that influence came from the north and mm-hmm. how that changed mm-hmm. Russia. And there's all this ongoing argument between all the historians of. Are they Viking people? Are they a Slavic people? Yeah. But each one is a very different group of people from whatever parts of the Russian and Soviet empire. So I think you're exactly breaking that up into that shows that there's a uniqueness in each one of these civilizations and peoples and countries, that they are separate. And they're not just one empire that should remain together, especially when you look at Finland. I mean, yeah, and you know when they tried the Russification under Nicholas the First, mm-hmm. Alexander the Third tried mm-hmm. so desperately to Russify everybody, but eventually failed. Yeah, and then you have Stalin who would then you know tear people from their home countries like in Crimea and send mm-hmm. them to Siberia and the mass changes that he and attacked Finland, right? <laughs> and attacked Finland at, with very little success at first, I might yeah. add. He didn't mm-hmm, work rather mm-hmm. poorly. But that comes to the hard copy of your book came out in 2020. How are the recent developments in the region and above all the Russian war in Ukraine changed the way you see your book project now? Thank you. So I started this project actually back in 2012. I had was spending a sabbatical in Kiev, my native city. And uh, first I started, I thought it was just going to be about Ukraine. And then I decided to add the northern uh, element and kind of grew into broader, broader project. But of course, it was still a relatively, I mean, there was some anxiety about like Russian influence uh, in Ukraine, but it was still very far from <laughs> the full scale war we have now. So I had, didn't had no expectation that my project will have some immediate historical political relevance because you know it's about 19th century and the representation of empire that's long gone right well not so gone as it turns out so and as as i was working then the events of 2013 and 14 and developed right unfolded was the maidan revolution the annexation of crimea the war in donbass so i even though as i said i was always a bit uncomfortable had been about making my literature research 
connected to politics, I, I just had to say it. I, I put it into the conclusion of my book, which I, I submitted the manuscript in 2019, that as I was working on this project, something truly uncanny happened that, uh, you know, Russian intervention in Ukraine, and it was before the, the full-scale invasion, right? Uh, and I kind of noticed how the same narratives, uh, the same rhetoric is coming back, not only the nightmarish kind of uncanny quality of the, the conflict, but also this idea that Ukraine is this chaotic, dark land that needs to be put in order. Uh, look at the Maidan, very similar to what uh, Russians were how they were perceiving like Cossack Dom, for example, the Cossacks it was crazy, um, wild, <laughs> uncivilized um, gangsters, right? Um, and and uh, without them, you know, being included into the Russian Empire and the imperial order, things would not have been <laughs> well there at all. Um, just as one example. Um, and then submitted the manuscript, right? Still 2019. I'm thinking like, wow, this is going to be dated so quickly. <laughs> Because I had really no idea what was coming next. And then, you know, 22 comes and we'll wake up to this horror, or rather it was the evening here, right? When when the shelling of Kiev started uh, overnight here, early morning for them. And uh, suddenly, yeah, and the book is, is it, I mean, I, I wouldn't want it to be relevant at this cost, of course, and by, by, by no means, but it, it has proven that uh, this doesn't go away. And, and in the, Press, we've seen, right, so many references to, like, Putin still operates within the 18th century, 19th century imperial framework, right? This is something I worked on, and then it's proven to, to be coming back. Again, not just politically, but it, because I'm a literature scholar, right? So work at the text of how you describe it, how you uh, verbalize it, right? Even the rhetoric, the discourse, right, is is, is still um the kind of let's say the imperial imagination. Let's put it this: the imperial imagination that I'm trying to unravel and kind of uh, describe in this book and analyze is still very much at work. Um, even Putin said he compared himself to Peter the Great, right? And said like, "We are returning. We are not conquering." We're, he mentioned Finland and the Baltics actually in, in the context of the Ukrainian war. We're just returning the lands that belong to us historically. The manipulation of history, right? Um, and we see a lot of that in that literature of the period, of course, in a more benign way, right, under the veneer of just an entertaining uh, adventure narrative or gothic narrative, but it's still there. So, yeah, unfortunately, it's it, the book has acquired renewed relevance, which I didn't want <laughs> and didn't expect. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very similar to what I'm working on. I, I finished the book and it was initially called Understanding Putin. But then I, thought, no, that's not right. It's understanding Russia. And it's, mm -hmm. and I had to change quite mm -hmm. a bit of it. Oh, I, I was trying to get it out about three years ago. And something just made me stop and say, something's going backwards. It's going back to a different time, especially with, with the annexation of Crimea, the yeah. Donbass. Uh, issues, I was very skeptical that it wasn't going to expand. And I was asked, do you think that he would, that Putin would actually invade Ukraine? Mm -hmm. And I said, yes and no. Yes, mm -hmm. because he has it in his mind that this is a Russian empire that he wants to go back to. And I think yeah. go back to the Soviet era, where they had even a larger empire. And, you know, with Poland and all sorts of behind the, uh, the wall. Mm -hmm. And I had to just think about this. And, and the literature is where I found solace, you might say, that my idea is that, yes, he will invade. 
even though it's not a smart move, and I don't think he has the ability to take over again. But it was in the literature, and, and Lermontov is one of those that I covered in the, the development of Russian literature. Now I think I have my book a little bit better yeah. situated for trying mm-hmm. to understand the Russian mindset. And it's not just Putin. It's many of the others within Russia itself and their mm-hmm. belief that they should take over. And I've been in contact with a number of Russians who have both sides. Uh, the ones who don't believe in Putin have been very careful about it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the others who still are there are saying, well, this was our, this is our land. So I see it in the literature of uh, so many of the, what, I don't want to call them minor authors because they're just mm-hmm. as important as the giants, as I put them. Yeah. So yeah. there are so many, and I think that's one of the things I'm going to be exploring in the next year or so. I, I really want to thank you, Professor Sobel, for spending time with us and sharing your passion in Slavic literature. For me, it's thank more you. than just Russian because my mother was born and raised in Yugoslavia. She was, you know, all through the Slavic uh, eras. And you know, of course. I remind everybody to go to the uh, Cornell University Press website that's going to be on any of the podcatchers. You'll be able to find it in the uh, description and look for the book Haunted Empire. Gothic and the Russian Imperial Uncanny. I want to thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for the invitation. It was my pleasure to talk about this project, which, yeah, as I said, has unfortunately some connection to the present political developments. And to my listeners, uh, until next time, dasvidanya i spasiba za vinyamanya. Where is... Oh, stop recording. <laughs> <laughs> There we go.